Welcome to the Retail Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host for today, Elmer Guardado. With the heightening of the online delivery arms race and the further collapse of the middle market, the retail landscape has never looked more different. Here to help us make sense of it all is Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit. Doug and I are going to talk about how Retail Profit came to be, the emerging trends in the retail industry, and lastly, break down why retail must die to be saved. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing fine. How are you, Elmer? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Doug, I thought a good place to start would be, you know, in 2008, you founded Retail Profit. Can you tell us that story and and how that came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So I had um, spent the better part of about 25 years working in the retail industry from various angles, both for manufacturers, distributors, uh, retail chains, and... uh, I led businesses in both Canada and the U.S. And in 2008, I decided two things. I was going to wrap up my corporate career. And I was really interested in starting a a boutique consultancy that focused really very squarely on the future of retail. It had been my observation, and I don't think I'm alone in this assessment, uh, but that corporate Retail was very short-sighted. It was very much a quarter-to-quarter earnings report to earnings report kind of industry, and I and I really felt in 2008, based on what I saw around me, that there was just so much that was sort of unraveling. Uh, whether it was the economic environment, of course, uh, the demographic shifts that were taking place, the media, uh, the media world was fragmenting, and of course, technology was rapidly shifting. And I I felt that uh, there was a a need to kind of put a narrative around that enormous amount of change. And so with that, in in 2008, I started Retail Profit. And um, it's just been, uh, obviously, since 2008, I think the whole retail complex has kind of blown up. And so uh, it's been a wild ride since then. And uh, I've released two books in the meantime, uh, the Retail Revival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism, and Reengineering Retail, the Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World. So, Doug, you acknowledge that, yeah, the landscape has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. How has retail profit adapted with this, you know, explosion of technology and the internet boom and, and all of this? How has retail profit adapted to this? Because one of the interesting things is I recently spoke to another futurist in a completely different industry and he was explaining how his job, you know, often people assume is to predict the future and try to plan for it. But instead he was telling me, no, my job is to help people build the future efficiently and effectively. So how has Retail Profit dealt with these all these changes? So our job, my job from the very beginning as I saw it, was not necessarily to simply, uh, you know, try to uh, assemble lists of trends uh, you know, or, or to try and uh, put together this conglomerate of things that are going on. Uh, because I felt, you know, just in looking around, there was no shortage of that. And I think typically that's what, what executives in, in various industries are exposed to, is sort of these, these data dumps of trends. The problem with that is that many of them lack any sense of context. Uh, there's very little kind of prioritization, there's no sense of um, 
you know, kind of the contextual relationship between the things in the landscape that are going on. And I found, I found as an executive in the industry for that many years, it, it was sort of difficult to, to get your arms around the totality of what's happening and what you're supposed to make of that. So I look at my role doing doing what I do is is certainly not to predict the future, but rather to try to very clearly articulate what is happening right now, what what is the interrelationship between the things that are happening? So, you know, the things that you're seeing in technology, how does that relate to how the, the customer experience at store level is changing. Uh, how is a consumer's facility and exposure to mobile fundamentally changing their online behavior? Um, how are new, new businesses that are entering the market, how are they regarding uh, physical stores? Are they a distribution mechanism? Are they a media mechanism? So my job is really to try and apply some context to all of this and then present that back to the industry in a, in a way that an executive who's sitting in an audience can can listen and say, you know what, I, I, I can internalize this. I can internalize what's happening right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And 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 walk away with an ability then to apply that that knowledge to a strategy. So the way I put it is, you know, futurism isn't about predicting the future you get. It's about engineering the future that you want. That that's what futurism means in, in my world. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. And that kind of leads us perfectly into uh one of the other things I want to discuss. You know, in, in our pre interview survey, we asked you what are some trends you're witnessing in the industry right now and you gave us a, a, a short little list, and I thought they were all interesting. So I'd love to go one by one and, and just break them, break them out. You bet. Let's do it. So the first one was growth of direct-to-consumer. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we read a lot of articles of late that talk about the retail apocalypse and, and retail Armageddon. And um, my view on that is that uh, I don't believe that retail as you know, I don't believe that retail as a concept is dying. It's certainly changing and it's changing rather dramatically, but I don't think it's dying. But what I do think could potentially uh, be on life support right now is wholesale. And the reason I say that is because I think that there is an awakening taking place right now among brands. And the awakening is something like this I, I think that brands for uh, at least the last couple of hundred years have been involved in a bargain with retailers that was born largely out of necessity. Uh, it certainly was not, uh, you know, a model. Uh, the wholesale to retail model was not something at its inception that was developed because it was optimal in terms of, um, uh, you know, what was best for the consumer, what's best for the brand sort of thing. I think that it was really uh, simply a, a factor of the scale, the scope and scale of markets over the last uh, 100 or 200 years has become such that brands were unable, just frankly, unable to go direct to consumer with their offerings because markets were too large, too difficult to penetrate. And so if you were Nike, for example, you needed to rely on retail distribution in order to penetrate the market sufficiently in order to expose your products to the whole market and do so without tremendous amounts of capital or risk. And, and, and hence, we have this retail structure today where brands sell in through distribution into retail. 
This is changing now, and it's changing fundamentally because I believe that we're coming back to a period that is almost um, sort of pre-industrial revolution where brands now are awakening to the idea that they can have direct relationships with consumers. And in doing so, they can learn a tremendous amount more than, uh, than they have been able to learn about their markets, about their consumers' uh, preferences and needs, and about their own products. I think they uh, can certainly better control the price of their products and the margins uh, that they enjoy. And uh, ultimately, they can much better control the, the way the story around their product is being told. And, and that is really, I think, the fundamental problem right now is that brands don't feel that their brand stories are being adequately told. So evidence of that, uh, in my opinion, was Mark Parker uh, from Nike, their CEO, uh, announcing to the market in 2017 that out of a universe of 30,000 retail partners globally, that Nike had made the decision to invest in 40 of those partners, only 40 of them. Uh, and the basis for those 40 being chosen was that Mark Parker and the folks at Nike believed that they were the 40 retailers that could offer uh, consumers the full Nike experience. But beyond that, they said, we're going to go direct to consumer. We're going to do it through our own websites, through our own store properties. And we are going to take our, our uh, destiny back in our own hands. And this is happening more and more frequently now. I mean, even Campbell's Soup is, is considering how they can now take their uh, products direct to consumers. So in a weird way, I think we're actually coming back to a period of about two or 300 years ago where uh, makers of things sold directly to the users of those things. This whole retail distribution construct in the middle didn't exist uh, and it didn't exist because it wasn't necessary. And I think we're actually coming back to that point. Yeah, man, that, that, that's fascinating. And I love that, that Nike example because, yeah, I can't, if it's not worth investing, because if you're not fully committed to, to the experience or, or in love with how you're being represented, why even invest in, in, in these, right? If this is, if, if especially, you know, with our next one, I, I'll just get to our next bullet point, the online delivery arms race, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that kind of ties in directly with how uh, consumers are, are deciding to shop now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is the thing. We we live in a world now where the challenge as a consumer is no longer to access the product. You know, and and it, what's what's amazing is that frankly, it wasn't that long ago that that was the consumer's primary issue was finding what they needed. You know, um pre-internet, what did you do? You know, you, you typically you got in the car, you drove to the mall, you scoured the mall to see if you could find what you needed. Um, if you couldn't find it there, I, I don't know, I, I can barely remember, uh, you know, pre-internet behavior, but I suppose you got out that big, that huge book we called the yellow pages and started looking through that. <laughs> um, you know, maybe you, maybe you phoned a friend, but you know, so that was the challenge 40 years ago, finding the product that you needed, finding a certain brand in a marketplace was, was an issue today. That's not the problem. Consumers have the entire universe at their fingertips. Anything you want, you can find it today. The challenge is, can I, can I get it? If I'm a brand, a, can I get it to a consumer fast enough? And if I'm a consumer, can I get it? Um, 
to my home, uh, you know, fast enough to satisfy my my, um, my needs. And and hence uh, we have this this delivery arms race that that yeah is is building up consistently. Um, Amazon in certain markets in the U.S. of course is delivering in two hours. Uh, so we're, we're we're not even talking today about days. We're talking about hours. Um, you know, the, the co-founders of Skype are testing um, a six-wheeled autonomous robot that delivers groceries twenty-four-seven. Uh, uh, you know, through the streets of London. Uh, Jeff Bezos is threatening drone delivery. Amazon is essentially becoming a shipping company and a courier company right out in, in plain sight. Um, you know, grocers now are kind of aligning with various parties, whether it's uh, uh, Uber or Lyft or, uh, you know, uh, Kroger working with Alibaba. I mean, it's just this incredible moon race now to try and get goods to consumers as fast as possible. And so that that the challenge then is no longer to convince consumers to buy things online. They're doing that with abundance. Uh, the challenge is to get the things to them that they need and want and do it in a way that's fast enough to satisfy their uh, their their needs. Right, right. So the third thing you listed here, I, I find really fascinating, further collapse of the middle market. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the the economy continues to polarize, and this is not a new phenomenon. I mean, I've I've read uh, some articles on this uh, and studies of, uh, of late that are, are treating this as though uh, this is a new development in the economy. But in fact, this is something that stretches back as far as the 1980s. It's just that we're seeing it in a much more pronounced fashion than we ever have before. But if if you step back, if you step back into the uh, early '80s, the, the you know the '70s, the '60s, what you find is that the brands that were accelerating were middle market brands. They were brands that middle class consumers uh, would and did aspire to. Uh, consumers of, of that time, with a with a growing and robust middle class, consumers aspired to be middle class. They wanted the trappings of middle class life. Everyone wanted to own, you know, a craftsman lawnmower and <laughs> live in the suburbs and have houses that look the same. And so there was a very robust middle market. And and the truth is that most of the retail that we drive by every day on our way to work or on our way to school is middle market retail. And the problem with that, and this is why we're seeing so much fallout in the industry right now, is the problem is that we are ceasing to be a middle-class centric society in, in North America and in many developed nations around the world. We are no longer societies that revolve around the middle class. We're becoming increasingly polarized in terms of incomes, in terms of wealth distribution, and, and it's not just economic, it's, it's also that consumers are gravitating uh, to more extreme and absolute value. So uh, the consumer is now sort of uh, you know, shifting their behavior between the extremes of value. So on the one hand, if, if what I need is a relatively inexpensive commodity product, then my first stop is Amazon. I'm going to see if I can find it. If I can, boom, I'll have it on my doorstep in a couple of days. If it's something that I'm shopping for that's more meaningful, more important to me, something that I really want to ensure that I get great quality, great advice, then I'm, I'm 
my my behavior then is skewing towards the upper end of the market. I'm you know I'm I'm more inclined to go to uh, a luxury purveyor that I feel I can get a great experience, I can get the right advice, and I can get a sort of a, a trademark quality product. What's being left out of the equation now is the middle. Consumers are essentially just treating the middle of the market as though it's invisible. And, uh, and, and they have a declining interest in shopping at retailers who are kind of the classic mid-tier retailers. And so, you know, I mean, you know, go back 40 or 50 years and JCPenney was a going concern. Right. And uh, today it's on life support, you know. So uh, brands like that have become sort of the bellwether for this, uh, this new reality. Yeah, I find this collapse of the middle market genuinely fascinating just because I think it it's penetrating every industry in almost every regard, right? Like even when we think about the uh, the entertainment industry, when you think about film, television, music, all of them, the spread is so far apart now. There's no middle ground. Everyone's either underground or indie in some regard, or it's a you know the most expensive thing there ever was. So it, it's it's fascinating to see that 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 dichotomy and and how it's you know, affecting almost every, every industry we think about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you, you're right. You see it across everything. You see it certainly in the, in the airline travel industry. I mean, if you look at a, if you look at a plane now, um, an airplane is almost a, a, a direct representation of society. You have this small number of people occupying a disproportionate amount of space at the front of the plane. Then you have this mass of people, uh, you know, arguably who are um, crammed into the back of the plane, but they but they represent the majority. But the you know they're not getting an equal distribution of of space in that plane. It's very very much uh, a direct reflection of the society we live in. And you're right. Even if you look at movies, the question is not anymore. You know, are we going to what movie are we going to see? It's a question of format. You know, are we going to just stay at home and watch Netflix, or are we going to go to a VIP cinema and and have a really great IMAX experience? You know, those are kind of the two extremes. But but what nobody wants is kind of the old run of the mill uh, movie theater where your feet stick to the ground. Yeah, it's almost as if like the, there's a need for a gimmick, right? Even when we think of and not in a necessarily a bad way, right? But it needs to all of a sudden be worth it to go out and do something and. And I think you see this too when you think about, you know, all these startup companies and, and, you know, whether it's in the service industry or whatever it may be, you, you still get that same spread where it's either a, a high end luxury thing or it's a, a super indie, you know, something like a, like a food box, like Blue Apron or something like that. Right. So it, it's really fascinating to see this distribute, this new distribution of, uh, of the marketplace. Yeah. You sort of have, you know, you have two different energies working in the market right now. Uh, you have this seemingly never-ending contingent of startups that are coming into markets and saying, how can we remove the complexity? How can we remove the cost? And how can we remove any friction that might exist in the current buying experience? You know, so you have you have businesses that are attacking channels and categories of, of products from that standpoint. And then on the other end, you have this, this what is really sort of a flight to luxury, where you have brands that are saying, look, in order to be safe, 
uh, we need to push our brand even further up market. We need to add value. We need to create experiential value around the product or we need to up our quality. And so, yeah, you're right. The spread continues to get greater and greater. And this is why if you are a mid-tier retailer, you need to make a decision really, really quickly. And, and I mean, there may be no better proxy for the marketplace than, than Walmart, to be honest, because Walmart basically uh, built its whole proposition on the back of the middle class. It was, you know, middle class people selling middle class products to other middle class people. And that was always kind of Sam Walton's vision. But now we see uh, the box that, that uh, Walmart finds itself in. You know, they, they, they need to go up market to find a more affluent consumer, uh, but they've sort of pigeonholed them, themselves into this kind of uh, blue collar uh, end of the market. Uh, they, need, they need to become better at their online game, which they're sort of struggling to do. So, you know, Walmart's kind of the canary in the coal mine, uh, so to speak, in terms of brands trying to survive this collapse of the middle. Right. So, Doug, the last thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, I think one of the generally one of the, the biggest challenges that I that I got from, you know, reading some of the things you've written is that there seems to be just a, a, a general lack in maybe not cre necessarily creativity, but initiative or, or, or want to change what what do you think you know is the best bit of advice you could give someone who's who's stuck in the in this position and and needs to get you know more creative and, and really reinvent their brand depends on the nature of the company i suppose um right well i guess let's let's stick with something like uh you know i i really i, I really enjoyed reading your uh uh to save retail let it die right from you wrote something in, in business of fashion and and you you were kind of outlining different different things that were uh, potential changes that that could come right as as the marketplace shifts. So you know you brought up that JCPenney example at the beginning. Can we can we talk about that and and maybe explain that to our listeners a little bit? Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, JCPenney um, in and around, I guess it was, um, I'm going to say 2010 ish. Um, JCPenney brought in Ron Johnson. Uh, former Apple employee to try and turn around the brand's fortunes. And at the time, I was asked by Advertising Age magazine to pick a side and, and write a column for them. And, and what they wanted to know is, do I think that Ron Johnson is going to succeed or is he going to fail? And um, I chose the side that he was going to fail. In, in this endeavor. And, and the reason, though, was not because the things that he was suggesting wouldn't be correct or wouldn't be feasible. But my belief was that the changes that he would recommend would be so radical that neither investors nor uh, employees nor the board of the company nor customers would receive it well or would have the stomach for the kind of change that he would be uh, proposing. Um, as it turned out, uh, I think we could say on balance, that's what happened. Now, some would argue that, well, I mean, he tanked their sales and, you know, um, he moved too quickly and, uh, you know, they, they lost a tremendous amount of revenue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could, we could debate the nuance, but the fact is, 
he came in, he made radical change. Uh, the board was not prepared to watch the, the revenues fall. And so they they ended uh, his his time with JCPenney and they sort of reverted to status quo. Uh, well, here we are eight, seven or eight years later, and JCPenney is right back where they where they started. So um, my belief is that in order for a brand to move forward, they really have to be prepared to do a couple of things. Number one is I think you have to uh, be prepared to throw away the playbook that got you to where you are today. Uh, you know, if we look at Walmart, you know, when Sam Walton started Walmart in, in the 60s, uh, you know, it was a very different time. It was a very different consumer and a very different retail landscape. To try and apply Walmart's strategy of the 1960s to today's market would be foolhardy. So you have to be able to, first of all, say, look, the, the, the ship that got us here is not going to be the ship that takes us to the, the new land. You know, we, we, have to, uh, we have to build something different. The second thing you have to build in, and this is particularly difficult for a company that's had, uh, you know, a long run of success. Uh, whether that be years or decades, it's difficult to say we're going to go through a period that will be marked quite likely by extraordinary failure, because we're going to be trying a lot of things that we've never tried before, you know, in order to find this new way of operating, this new uh, connection to a new consumer, we, we are going to have to try things that have been unprecedented. And therefore, those things are going to hold an inordinate amount of risk for our business and we are quite likely to fail. Hard to prepare the organization for that. It's very hard to prepare the market for that because the markets don't, don't deal with failure very well. And so there's a lot of conditioning that needs to take place and that conditioning needs to be done by leadership. Leadership needs to create a story that is compelling, that, that investors and staff and, and customers, frankly, want to go along with. They want to be on that journey with you, uh, that journey towards change and toward a new value proposition. Most organizations don't do that awfully well. But I think the third thing is you need to find a new lens to look at the market through. And one of the things I think I may have mentioned in my list is that I believe that we are right now in a period of time where the, the, uh, the roles and the purpose of media versus physical stores are actually interchanging. They're exchanging roles. The purpose of media used to be to advertise a brand story and a product story and drive people to stores to buy things. Uh, I believe now the role of media is to be the store, is to be the direct portal for people to buy things. And I believe physical stores in, in turn are becoming a form of media. They're becoming a media channel more than a distribution channel because let's face it, the distribution of products through physical stores is certainly proving not to be the most efficient way uh, of distributing to a market. So with that in mind, if, if, if every business out there today, if every retail business were to just look at their business and say, look, our physical stores are media and every piece of media that we put in the marketplace is the store, that would be such a fundamental change of viewpoint that I think it would bring tremendous uh, progressive change to the business. So it's really, it's really those, you know, I mean, we, there, there are lots of other things that businesses could do, but I think fundamentally you have to be uh, prepared to throw away the old playbook. 
prepared to go through a period of failure uh, and iteration and innovation. And the third thing is you have to condition, properly condition the market, the organization and your customers for the changes that are going to come. Well, Doug, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I, I seriously appreciate you being so candid with me and, and thank you for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to articles, podcasts, and video content for your favorite industries. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Have a good day.